The rest of you, I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Let's stand as we open the Word of God together. We're going to look at uh, much of the chapter, but I want to just give you a text within the context of chapter 21, beginning with verse 15. And this is after the disciples had recognized it was Jesus on the seashore, and they had, following the resurrection, had this third experience with the living Lord, third encounter, if you will, with the living Lord. It says, so, verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Father, we hear that admonition today. We believe that you have risen. We have encountered you. Many of us, through your Spirit, we have come into a relationship with you in a very real way. Lord, now we hear your voice saying, follow me. Lord, I pray that through your word, by your Spirit this morning, you would show us what that means. What it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we're still continuing through the spring our series on 2020 vision, sharpening the focus, getting a, a better understanding, more clarity concerning what God has called us to be about in this world. Now, last year, uh, excuse me, last week, we focused on the resurrection the crucifixion, the resurrection, only Christ died for you, only Christ rose again, only Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We can get that fact straight, believe Jesus is alive. As a matter of fact, all over this world people were celebrating, but very few as a result of all of that become followers of Christ. We're lacking direction. A lot of people that claim to be Christians still act like they don't know what they're to be about. They don't know where they're going with life. It was Yogi Berra who said, you got to be careful if you don't know where you're going because you might not get there. He was known for saying things like that, wasn't he? There was someone who was perhaps one of the most famous word crafters as a journalist of all time. His name was Charles Corralt. Tina could tell you that Charles Corralt is from North Carolina. She probably wouldn't brag that he was... Chapel Hill, or graduated from Chapel Hill. He was actually from Wilmington, North Carolina, where we had the joy of living for some time. But I, I love to hear his voice. And if you can hear an old documentary or hear, hear him tell the story, 
on one of his journalistic presentations. He's got a voice that just kind of rings in your ear. You never forget uh, hearing Charles Kuralt. Charles Kuralt had a uh, program for years where he traveled America and talked about the very places. He would report through CBS television, very places where he had traveled and tell you a few things about those places. Charles Kuralt said this, though. He said, thanks to the interstate highway system, it is now possible to travel from coast to coast without seeing anything. Isn't that true? It's possible to travel from coast to coast without seeing anything. And that reminds me that there is a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a broad road where people are just flying through life, trying to get everywhere as quick as they possibly can. And when they come to the end of their life, they find out they haven't been anywhere. And there's a narrow road that leads to life. We might call it the back road, off-road, life with Jesus. And few there are who find it. Many believers celebrate our risen Lord, but few have taken that narrow road and, and, and truly, day by day, walk with Him in a very real and personal way. Few follow with life devoted to the living Lord. As we come to John chapter 20, 21, last week we saw where, as, uh, on, during the sunrise service, Pastor Ben reminded us that it was early in the morning that they found that the stone had been rolled away. We see Christ had appeared to Mary Magdalene and then to the other disciples. He appeared to them without Thomas, and then he appeared to them again with Thomas present. And then this third time. This third time the disciples are out, at least about seven of them, probably those who were familiar with fishing and and spending time with... uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, who certainly that had been their trade. They're out, and Peter had gone fishing. They had gone on this excursion. They're out there fishing, kind of doing their thing, wondering what's next in life. And they see someone standing over by the seashore. They realize it's Jesus. And upon realizing that it's Christ, Peter jumps out of the boat. He comes and and he's with the Lord. The other disciples join in the conversation, which leads to this moment of restoration where Jesus is restoring Peter to a life of full devotion, total affection for Christ. You might ask, what does this have to do with our 2020 vision process, our our discovering and sharpening our vision, being about what God has called us to do? Let me just mention a few things. One thing is, is we have revisited this process. This past week, I believe the Lord kind of laid on my heart to be a little bit more clear with our vision statement. And I shared this, kind of bounced this off of our leaders via email and kind of reworded. For, for the past several years, you have noticed on front of your bulletin, anywhere you saw our mission statement, it said something like this. Leading people to know, love, and serve God through a vibrant and growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But the truth of the matter is probably not a lot of you have memorized that or not a lot of you have said, you know what, yeah, that's what we're about as a church, that's what I'm about as a Christian. And so what we've sought to do is make that a little bit more clear. Not change our mission, we're still about leading people, but who are those people? 
specifically, who are we passionate about reaching here at Trinity? The home, our community, ultimately our world for Christ. And so we've changed that to read influencing because leadership is influence. We need to be reminded if we're not influencing people around us, we're not leading anyone. Influencing our homes, our community, and our world to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. And we say know, love, and serve God in and, and, and a vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus Christ, but that's somewhat redundant, isn't it? Jesus is God's manifest presence. He is God revealed to us. We're leading people. We're influencing homes, communities, and our world to know, love, and serve Jesus. And that's what this text is all about. We've asked you to help out in, in a number of ways by examining what God is doing. There's the call, call to serve inventory that's in your bulletins again this morning. I think one of the life groups took some time to fill those out. If you haven't turned one of those in yet, it's placed in your bulletin again. I want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. Take a moment. Fill that out. Even this morning at the end of the service, drop that in the offering plate. Turn that in to me or somebody on our ministry placement team so we can see what God is doing in your life. Next week, the ministry teams will be gathering together to look more specifically at what God is doing in our midst and how he's speaking into our lives. We're going to be examining some core competencies over this uh, month and, and throughout perhaps the month of June. In other words, if we know, love, and serve Jesus, what does that look like in real life? If we look at our core values as a church, things like doctrinal integrity and prayer and missions and evangelism, what does a disciple of Christ look like who really values those things? And so we're going to seek to discover some core competencies and look at some uh, various age groups with our children and youth and, and have some goals to say, hey, by this age, if somebody's growing up in this church, we want to see that these biblical values have been established in their life. So the, the responsibility, and I ask you to pray for me, the responsibility of a pastor is not only to listen to God, but encourage the body of Christ to listen to God. That means I need to be listening to the body of Christ. I need feedback from you. But it's my responsibility to process this information, to articulate the direction, to articulate the vision, and to network the execution of that. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not the pastor or the associate pastor, it's not the staff's job to do the work of the ministry. It's our job, and while we're doing the work of the ministry, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And you are the saints. And so we're in a process as the body of Christ all of us finding our place, our responsibility to influence our homes, our community, and our world to know and to love and to serve Jesus. Now, how does John 21, how does this post-resurrection appearance relate directly to influencing homes, communities? And let's just kind of break it down a little bit this morning. In the first 14 verses, we see that these guys are out there fishing, and then in verse 5, Jesus calls out to them from the shore, Children, have you any food? They answered, No. Jesus said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, there should have been a deja vu moment in the life of these disciples at this point. 
Hadn't they heard that somewhere before? Had not Peter heard that before? Cast the net on the other side. And he pulled in so many that the boats began to sink. Well, leave it up to John, the one who's writing this gospel, the one who referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Because they cast their net on the other side. They begin to pull the fish in. And it was John who said first, verse 7, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Peter heard that. He believed. He recognized. And so there's a recognition of the Lord who died for us going on here. Recognition. Recognition. There was a knowledge. They recognized again this is the Lord. This is Jesus. He's the one. We see what's taking place here. We recognize this is the Lord. Peter couldn't contain himself, so he dove. Look, the other disciples came too, but Peter couldn't wait to get closer to the Lord who had died for him. So they recognized him and they drew close to him. Recognition of the Lord who died for us, that's knowing him. Influencing our homes, communities, and our world to know Jesus, to recognize Jesus, and as a result of that, to draw close to Jesus and have a closer fellowship. It is both cognitive and intimate knowledge. Cognitive, they recognize that's Jesus. And we want our kids and the future generations here, we want adults who don't know already to come to a cognition, to a a knowledge of who Jesus is. We specifically want them to know the Jesus of the Bible. I know that there are folks out there that will say, you conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-thumping evangelicals, you are the folks, if you're not careful, you're worshiping the very Word of God. And, And we need to get to the place where we worship Jesus, not the Word. But usually those who will say that are saying, we don't want the Bible to have a place of authority in our life. It's really just all about Jesus. Here's the question. By the way, we do worship Jesus Christ, not the Word of God, the living Word of God we worship. But how do we know which Jesus to worship apart from the Bible? People have made Jesus out to be anything and everything they want him to be. Are you going to worship the Jesus of the History Channel? Are you going to worship the Jesus of National Geographic? Are you going to worship the Jesus that is, that is popular on daily talk shows that kind of says do whatever you want to do and pray to me whenever you get a chance? Or are we going to worship the Jesus of the Bible? Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Paul wanted to have a cognitive knowledge, but a personal and intimate knowledge. So they see him, they recognize him, and they draw close. And that's what we want to lead and influence people to do, to be able to recognize Jesus of the Bible, and to draw close, and to have a personal relationship with him. A lot of times we like to to brag about people that we know. We, we sometimes like to do a, a little bit of name dropping. Well, hey, I, I, the other day I was able to spend a lot of time with so-and-so. Now people do that. You know, I spent a lot of time with so-and-so. Really it was, you dropped them a message in their inbox on Facebook and they haven't replied yet. We love to say that I'm best friends with the most popular person at school or I know the boss in the workplace, or the boss knows me personally, and maybe we want to pretend as many of the advertisers do on TV. We know our clients better than anybody. But as a nation, 
And even in the midst of the Bible Belt, we've gotten to where we really know very little about Jesus of the Bible. And so we want through our small group ministry, through our Awana ministry, life groups, kids worship, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God from this pulpit on Sundays, we want to be sure that we are learning to know Jesus Christ intimately, cognitively, yes, Jesus of the Bible, but intimately to have that personal relationship with Christ. And, and that our church would have a vision of a generation that knows the Jesus of the Bible, but more than a cognitive knowledge, they are drawing close to him on a daily basis. So through the preaching and the teaching and the small groups, through, through words that are even in the, the songs that we sing, for instance, this morning, you were in the midst of intimate worship, but you were singing words that tell us who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's the message that the world needs to hear. Through equipping our homes and, and individuals to have what it, it, in the summer at kids camp we call TOG time, T-A-W-G. To encourage people to have time alone with God, not just to know him in our heads, but to grow close to him in our hearts and to spend time alone with him on a daily basis. Time in the word. That's why many of us need to take up journaling. And, and, and learn to write down those things God is teaching us about himself and who we are in light of him and how to live as a result. The beginning of all of this is evangelism. Helping others to come to know him. That's the starting point. They can't love and serve one they do not know. And so they recognized it was the Lord and they drew close to him. And then we come to this conversation with Jesus and Peter. And this is where we see the other two elements of our mission statement. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see there was a restoration, not only recognition of who Jesus is, but there was a restoration to love Christ preeminently. The restoration specifically here had to do with Peter. Interestingly, Peter had denied Christ three times before the rooster had crowed on the day Christ would be crucified. Jesus prophesied that would happen, so he asked him about this love that he would have for him three times so that it becomes very apparent that John is trying to remind us that Peter has been restored to a right love relationship, that there would be a preeminent love in Peter's life for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Verse 15. And then he says, more than these. Do you love me more than these? And scholars love to debate, who are the more than these? What do you mean, love me more than these? Who are the more than these? Some say it refers to the other disciples. Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples? And he's going, yes, Lord. Others say that these refers to the fact that they brought some of the fish and it was not just, you know, good eating. Do you love me more than eating these fish? But do you love the life of following me more than you love the life that you had as a fisherman? Do you love me more than these things? And Peter was saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The truth of the matter is we're not real certain what the more than these is. But we do know that Jesus was demanding, he was calling for preeminent affection. The greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you love Jesus preeminently? See, our mission 
is to influence people to know Jesus, but to know him is to love him. The more you know him, the more you will fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. This questioning here, because he asks it two more times in verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And then again, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Some scholars make much out of the Greek words for the word love, and some say that it's of no significance. I tend to think there's some significance here, because what's interesting is the word used for love, when Jesus says, do you love me, the first two times is the word agape. Do you agape love me? What is agape? Agape is God's unconditional love for us, and it's the love that he asks us to return to him, to reciprocate that love. It's a love that says, I love you enough to give you everything, when Jesus demonstrated agape love, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his life on a cross for our sins, love was, I'm willing to die for you. That's what real love is. Young ladies, I want to encourage you, when you discover real love, it's when you find somebody who would give their very life for you. Jesus is saying, do you love me with that kind of love? The first two times Peter answers with not the word agape, but with the word phileo, which you know, we see in the words Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's kind of a family love. It's a tight-knit love. It's a good, strong like and friendship. And, and it, you know, there's enough there that we can be very appreciative when it exists, but it's not agape. And he says, you know, Lord, I, I love you like a brother. <laughs> I, I love you like family. And it's as if Jesus is asking, but Peter, are you willing to die for me? A second time, and Peter is saying, well, I love you. I, I told you I love you like family. Peter knows that he was not willing to die when he denied Christ three times. But when Jesus asked it a third time in the Greek language, he he uses the word phileo, which I believe tells us that God is willing to meet us right where we are. So Peter, do you love me like family? You love me more than these? You, You ready to have a preeminent love for me? Peter says, you know I do. And then in verse 18, he begins to explain what kind of death, Peter would die. Historians tell us that Peter was crucified upside down, that when they got ready to crucify him in the manner that Jesus was crucified, that that Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way my Lord was crucified, so they crucified him upside down. What Jesus was saying is, Peter, one day you are going to be willing to die for me. You're going to grow in this love relationship. Right now, be about the ministry I've called you to. Do you love me? Peter's like, I like you a lot. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready to die for you yet. Could you imagine if when Tina and I had been dating, let's let's say that when I got ready to propose, let's just say for a moment I had never told her that I love her. By the way, I had told her about this time. She also knew, because of conversations we had had, that I would never use the words, I love you, until I knew that I was willing to marry you. And so she kind of knew where the relationship was going. But let's say I had never said I love you. And I got ready to propose, and I said, Tina, you know what? I just want you to know I really like you a lot. And it's likes imported, isn't it? Tina, I, I like you... As a matter of fact, I love you like a sister. And so would, would, 
would you marry me? I need somebody to kind of look after me and all that. She would have said, forget it. You like me? You love me like a sister? There's got to be more to it than that. Seeing you, I believe, with all my heart, that the day that I proposed, the day that we entered into that relationship, I was saying, listen, I would give my life for you, and I'm ready to spend my life with you. And that's where Jesus was trying to bring Peter to that point where he was saying, I would give my life for you. I'm giving my life to you to follow you. To influence people to know Jesus, to know him, is to love him. It's possible to preserve doctrinal integrity and say that we know the right Jesus and we articulate the Jesus of the Bible, that this is who he is and this is what he is about and this is how we enter into a relationship with him. It's possible to have it all right up here but not have a genuine love for Christ. That knowledge has to lead to love, to where we love Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you love Jesus more than these, more than the other relationships in your life? Do you love him more than the things that this world has to The church of Ephesus had it all together, didn't they? The church of Ephesus was a hard-working church. The church at Ephesus pointed out false doctrine. As a matter of fact, they had kicked out of their midst those who were teaching a hellacious doctrine that would lead people astray. But when Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he says, I still have one thing against you. You have lost your first love. You've lost your passion and your zeal for me. You, You have lost that preeminent love. I'm not number one in your life anymore. Do we love Jesus most of all? You'd be preaching and singing the right words, but that's not enough. Do we have devoted expressions to Christ? When we are gathered and when we are scattered, you might say, well, pastor, on the Lord's day, when we come in here on a day like today and the music is beautiful and the the preaching is adequate, (laughs) when we gather together on a day like today, and and everybody around me is also in church, it's easy for me to say, oh yeah, I love the Lord, I love Jesus Christ, but it's a little bit more difficult when I'm at school tomorrow to stand up and say, I love Jesus. It's a little bit more difficult in my neighborhood to be known as the Christian who loves Jesus. Pastor, you don't understand, it is hard in my workplace to be known as a fanatic who loves Jesus with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus said, do you love me more than these? When we're gathered, there should be an expression of that love, but when we're scattered, there should be an expression. Our homes, our communities, and our world, how do we lead them to know a God that we don't love? Do your friends, do your neighbors, do your relatives, do your classmates, do your coworkers know that you love Jesus? This will lead to Christian character and godly living, you say, well, you know what? I don't want to tell them I love Jesus until I'm living right, until I'm doing the right thing. Listen, when you become very vocal about your love for Christ, you'll start living right. You'll start saying to yourself, well, you know what? They know I'm a Christian. I better make choices that please God. I'm very vocal about my love for Christ. I'm kind of upfront about it. So, Lord, I'm relying on your power to live a holy and godly life. 
In John chapter 15, where Jesus is talking about we are the branches, he is the vine, we're to abide in him. He explains that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. See, we don't need outward confirmation. I don't need to come in and beat you up as the body of Christ with the word of God and say you ought to be doing this and you ought not to be doing that. Yes, the Bible confronts sin, so we will do that, but what's much more important? What's the better way? It's for me to fall so in love with Jesus Christ that I do the right things because I love Him. Listen, I knew when I was a child that if I misbehaved, if I did something I wasn't supposed to do, that I better fear the wrath of my dad's belt. Anybody have one of those dads who said, if you get in trouble at school and you have to get punished for it, when you get home you're going to get a double blessing, double portion of that? Uh, Yeah, I had one of those dads. But I also loved my parents. And I also didn't, you know, I, I knew that my parents had tender hearts and I didn't want to break their hearts. And what was the higher motivation? Living right so that I didn't get a spanking? or living right because I didn't want to break my parents' hearts. When we fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, holy and righteous living will follow because we will not want to break the heart of God. You can teach your kids a lot of rules. And I believe in rules. But if you don't teach them to love Jesus with their heart, as soon as they're out of your house, the rules are going to be out the door. Those rules don't last. A relationship a relationship is what will last. Be sure that's in place. Then number three, you see a reminder. A reminder to live on mission with Christ. Peter's responding, with the, the most that I can be honest about, Peter is saying, Lord, you know that I love you. As real as I can be, Lord, you know I have a love for you, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to die for you yet. Jesus saying, that's okay, one day you will be, because you're going to grow in this love. But loving naturally leads to serving. So Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He had referred to the body of Christ as sheep over and over again. His people were the sheep of his pasture. And we see that throughout the Scriptures. Now he's telling Peter, serious about this ministry I've called you to. To know Him is to love Him. To love Him is to serve Him. Peter had been given a ministry. It was time to do it. Again, this was a deja vu scene here. Cast the nets on the other side. First time this took place was when Jesus said, Peter, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. You're going to catch men. And so he's using this moment there around the breakfast campfire eating fish that they had just caught. He's saying, remember what I called you to do, Peter. Fish for men. You're going to be a leader in the church, Peter. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. But we are His workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created, literally recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. God saved us for a purpose. God saved us, and at the moment you got saved, the moment I got saved, God did not rapture us right out of here and straight to heaven. Now, I think that would have been pretty cool, wouldn't it? I mean, if if the moment somebody got saved, if you just saw a premature rapture, man, through the roof, 
They're out of here. They're in heaven. That would be awesome. Why does he not do that? It's because he's got work for us to do in this world. And he'll call us home when our work is done. And if you're here this morning and you're breathing and you're a child of God, it's because God's got a purpose. He's got a work for you. Fully devoted followers find their place of service in the kingdom of God. They know him, they love him, and they serve him. They don't just become critics of the game. You know I'm a great sports critic. It's been said before that Sanford Stadium in Athens is a great picture, a great illustration of the church. About 93,000 people screaming and yelling, getting excited when things are done right, getting upset when things are done wrong. There are people that know more than the coach and know more than the players, but people who are not athletes will sit up in the stands and make a lot of noise while there are 22 people down on the field that are trying to make things happen. And sometimes the church is a picture of that. You know, we, we, we try to say, man, the church ought to be doing this, church ought to be going there, church ought to be... Man, the, the coach, the leadership should be doing one thing or should be doing another, and I just don't get it. And we, like, like fans at a ball game, we're all yelling our criticisms. And I can be a great sports critic, but the truth of the matter is, I'm not a great athlete. And they're not going to invite me down on the field, they're not going to say, hey, Brown, you quarterback. It's not going to happen. God didn't call us to be fans. He called us to be followers. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, and I would encourage you, get a copy of this book. Read this book. Kyle Eidelman said in Not a Fan, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits but not so close that it requires anything from them. See, we've made fans the greatest celebrities today, haven't we? I mean, think about who are the greatest celebrities on American Idol. It's the judges. (laughs) It's the critics. And there are so many people that start to serve in the church. They roll up their sleeves. They want to do evangelism. They start sharing their testimony. They find a place to work. Some feel called into ministry and begin to serve in ministry and in various places, some vocationally, you know, full-time in ministry. And they feel like they have to go stand in front of the... It's not Randy, Paula, and Simon anymore, is it? It's Harry and whoever else. But they feel like, you know, we've got to do that. And if you're not careful, you'll fall into a performance trap. And you feel like you're just trying to please everybody and make everybody else happy. Listen, if you're serving and you're serving with passion, do it out of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, Colossians 3.23, do it all in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father. He's the one who qualified us for the inheritance. And so do everything you do for the glory of God And then if somebody begins to criticize how you're serving, how you're leading, what you're doing, just say, listen, roll up your sleeves and join. Just come be a part of it. Join the team. Let's work together for the cause of Christ. See, to know him, to know him is to love him. And to love him is to serve him. We were talking about this morning in the college life group, when we begin to serve him, He just kind of puts his arms around us and serves. And even though we don't do everything right, by the grace of God, he makes something beautiful out of our efforts when we serve for his glory. What are we about? Influencing people 
to know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what we're all about. Everything else we do is to lead people, to influence people, to know and to love and to serve Jesus Christ. Our homes, our communities, and our world. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?